Well, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and um, I'm going to be teaching this morning, and we are studying in the book of John, and last week we, we began in John chapter 4, so if you have your Bible, turn with me, tur- turn to the book of John, and if you don't have a Bible, um, you know, I won't like make you get up in the middle of the service and go get one and be embarrassed and all that stuff, but if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles back there. On your way out, grab a Bible, take it, you can read through uh, the text, uh, you know, you can read... Just And you can keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. Um, it's God's word. It brings life. And we want you to have it if you don't own a copy. So feel free to grab one on your way out. Or you can get up and get one right now. Nobody will judge you for that um, to your face. We're Christians. Um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Yeah. So I'm kidding. No one's going to judge you. Um, the... Uh, uh, yeah, I should probably get back into it here. Um, all right. <laughs> You know, last week we looked at Jesus and probably one of the most unlikely encounters that Jesus had with anybody in the New Testament. It might not be the most unlikely, but it's, it's got to be ranking up there. And it was, with a, it was with a Samaritan woman. Like Jesus was on a journey. He and his disciples were walking back to Galilee. Um, they, they cut through the land of Samaria. Jesus was tired, it says, and he was resting by this well as his disciples went in to grab lunch from town. And And the Samaritan woman came to draw water in the middle of the day by herself, which is is all kind of pointing to these things that she's kind of even excluded from her own people. She's she's coming when nobody would want to come in the the hottest part of the day to come and get water. um, And she's all alone. And she and Jesus enter into this conversation. You know, when the Samaritans and Jesus um, and, and the Jews, they had every, like, division possible. They had um, ethnic division because they, the Jews looked down on, like, the ethnic line of, like, the Samaritans. They had religious division. They had political division. And, in fact, our text actually said that we looked at last week that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Like, these are people that you just don't talk to. They are the wrong kind of people. And yet Jesus, when this woman shows up, engages with her and makes her this amazing, like, offer. He says to her in John chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What Jesus is telling this woman is that, is that he is the one who has the Spirit of God. This is what we saw in John chapter 3. And he is the one who, who is willing to give the Spirit of God, give this living water to, that, that would speak to her deepest thirsts. And that this living water is like signifying of the work of the Spirit. It would give her a new birth. That's what we saw in John chapter 3. It would give her this new life. It would spring up in her and bring her into this new status of, of like eternal life. This whole new quality of life that's available in Jesus. And what she was telling her, what he was telling her, was that her deepest thirst could be satisfied. Not that God would completely just take away her thirsts, but that this new relationship with God, this new spiritual life that she would have by the Spirit of God would always give her access to, to have those deepest parts of her heart like spoken to. You know, and as we went through the story last week, what we saw is that she still kind of completely didn't get it. So what Jesus had to do was kind of like graciously expose her area of greatest thirst. 
And he brought it up and it, and it kind of came out probably much to her like embarrassment that she had had five husbands and now she was just living with a guy and didn't even bother to get married. Like, right? You could probably sympathize with her in some ways. And yet Jesus continued to make this promise to her. Like, you can have your deepest thirst satisfied. I'm the one who gives the spirit of God. I'm the one who gives this new life. I'm the one that can that can satisfy your deepest thirst. You know, I was talking to Grant. Uh, next week, we're going to have a, a, one of the pastors from one of our network churches speaking here, and I was talking to him about the fact that I was in John 4, and he made this really great observation that I'm embarrassed that I didn't catch it myself. Um, and when we were talking about John 4, he said that, you know, she, she had been with six guys. Like, she had five husbands, and the guy that she was with now is number six. And in the Jewish, in the Jewish world, like, in the Jewish world, like seven is the number of completion, right? She had gone to the same well over and over and over and over and over again. And then the seventh kind of mystery guy that she meets at the well is the one that brings her thirst like to its conclusion. It's the one that can satisfy her thirst. You know, we're going to continue in that story today, but I, I think as we kind of get to this point in the story, it would just be remarkable and mind-blowing to this woman that Jesus, knowing her story full well, completely in its detail, would offer her like this new life, a new spirit, and a completely new intimate relationship with God. And our story is going to break out in four kind of scenes uh, um, this week, uh, for, and I just got four words. I was trying to think of something cool, but you just get four words. Um, first scene is verses 19 through 26. Jesus is going to talk about worship. Second scene, verses 27 through 30. There's going to be this kind of wonder, both on her behalf and on the disciples' behalf. Then Jesus is going to talk about work, and then we're going to see the power of like the word to save people. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to read the text. I'll start at probably uh, verse 19. Um, I'll start at verse 17, actually, just to give us a little bit of context, and I'll stop uh, probably around verse 26. But um, this is God's word for his church. The woman, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such both the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the fact that you reveal yourself to us in it, that you reveal your son, Jesus Christ, to us. And even as Marv said during worship, that, that you reveal like Christ's like, beauty and supremacy and awesomeness um, to us in a way that uh, no other human could ever could ever live and you reveal yourself to us perfectly in him so father i just ask that for your help and my weakness to be able to um, 
just elevate Jesus to the place he needs to be and in so doing elevate you to the place you need to be so that you could receive all glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I I picked up in verse 17 because right there is where Jesus kind of exposed to her her area of thirst when he kind of had to have her admit that she, the guy that she was living with wasn't her husband. And Jesus in his grace was pointing that out to her so that he could actually satisfy what she really needed. And in verse 19, it starts off with then this woman says, like, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then there's this question that seems just like a theological question. And, and it's hard to see the connection, I think, between verse, like between her question. It's not even really a question. It's a statement in verse 20 and, and what, everything that's gone before that. And a lot of people think that in that moment of having her like sin exposed, that this woman then instantly is trying to deflect like attention into like some theological debate, right? Like, which very well could be the case. I, um, but like, as I've been studying this and as I've been reading this through, I, I don't think that's what's going on in the story. In fact, I think something else is going on. Because, because if you think about what's, going, what's happening here is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, is talking to a Samaritan woman. Like, remember, like, there is hundreds and hundreds of years of, like, segregation, discrimination, like, hatred, everything that Jesus is crossing in this moment as he's talking to this woman and he's offering her eternal life. And I can't help but think, like, that she has a hard time believing that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, would offer her, a Samaritan woman, like, something so unbelievable. So I think what she's doing is she's coming to Jesus and she's saying, and she asks this, she asks a theological question or she makes a theological statement that's right at the heart of the division between Jews and Samaritans. And she says, like, hey, you people say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Our people say you have to worship on this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim, because the, the, the Samaritans had built their own temple there. And part of the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans is about 100 years after they built it, the Jews tore it down. In fact, in Jesus' time, there wasn't a, a temple there, but they were still offering sacrifices there. And she says, she's basically throwing it out there, which one's right? I think what she's doing is she's, just, is she's, she's basically testing Jesus. And she's saying, hey, I'm, you've made this incredible offer to me where you promised to satisfy my deepest thirst, but you're a Jewish rabbi. Are you going to give me the same, like, what's the word I was looking for? It's in my notes. Hold on. <laughs> rhetoric. Okay, that wasn't the word, but that's a good word. Are you going to be the same rhetoric, the same partisan, exclusivist, and religious sort of like elitism that I've heard my entire life? Or is this offer to me, is this promise from God that my deepest thirsts could be satisfied in you and through the work of the Spirit from you? Is that really a genuine offer or is this just a, one more partisan thing where Jews show us how much better they are than us Samaritans? I think that's the heart of her question. Because Jesus' offer to her is unbelievable. Jesus' offer to us is unbelievable. In fact, you know, he, he changes his offer and uses it in general terms. He's not just speaking to her when he offers her this eternal life and this, and this well of water. It's whoever drinks. Is Jesus' offer such that it crosses all the partisan racial political, religious, ethnic divides that we use so often to divide people or not. 
And Jesus answers her, and listen to what he says. Verse 21. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. I think that kind of gives us a clue. Like, she was still doubting, right? He's like, no, believe me, this is all true. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We talked about this back in, back in John chapter 2 when, when Jesus turned water into wine and he told his mom, like, hey, my hour has not yet come. And that, that term, his hour, is speaking about that, that moment, that decisive moment in all of human history when, when Jesus would be delivered into the hands of men, where he would be like mistreated and, and beaten and executed and die and buried, be buried and, and yet rise again from the dead and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. That, and, and that changes everything, that hour. He's like, hey, there's an hour coming. Samaritan woman, we don't even know her name. When all of those questions that you just asked are irrelevant. It's not going to matter if you sacrifice in, on Mount Gerizim. It's not going to matter if you sacrifice in Jerusalem. Because all of the things that the sacrifices were pointed to will be have satisfied and met once for all in that hour when the Son of Man is lifted up and uh, in atonement for the sins of the world. It is all going to be obsolete. You're asking the wrong question, is what he's telling her. There's an hour coming when it won't even matter. You know, it's this, it's this response to her that's just filled with grace. Because he's like, you know, like all of those divisions that you're feeling between me and you, no, there's, that's all going to be taken away. My work is going to satisfy all of it so that, so that you don't need to worry about any of that anymore. And then he says this, verse 22. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So not only is his response to her like filled with grace, but it's also filled with truth. And, and his statement, salvation is from the Jews, kind of has this like feeling of, like, to us, like it might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that Jesus is giving her the same elitist stuff and partisan stuff that she'd heard all of her life. And yet he's not. He had just offered eternal life to her, this spring of water that would satisfy her to eternal life. And then he says, but there is something wrong with your Samaritan worship. The Samaritans only like worship the five, I mean, like only believe that the first five books of the Bible were true. Um, Because of that, their view of who the Messiah was, was really, really small. Um, the book of Isaiah, for example, they wouldn't have even acknowledged as, as being part of the scriptures. And so that the very things like, like that Chris spoke about on the video, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give themselves access to that. What Jesus is saying is like, yeah, your Samaritan worship system isn't enough. He says, but salvation is, because salvation is from the Jews. It's, it's the scriptures that the Jews have that point to me so specifically. It's the one that, that's the scriptures that point to like the need for atonement and the, the fact that God's going to send his servant to stand in our place. Salvation is from the Jews, but he doesn't say salvation is for the Jews. He's saying salvation is from the Jews, like the Messiah, this one who's going to come and save everyone, isn't from, isn't from the Samaritans. It's, it's from the Jews. He's, he's going to be a Jewish guy. But he's for the whole world. In fact, that's what we saw in John 3, right? For God so loved the people just like him that he gave his only begotten son, right? How many of you guys know where I messed and went wrong there, right? And like, 
Salvation is for the world. He's a Jewish savior, but he's for her. In fact, from the very beginning, from the time he decided to cut through Samaria, from the time when he sent his disciples off to, the, to, the, to buy food in town so that he could sit there alone, like, I'm fully convinced that he knew she was coming. Like, he knew she had five like, husbands before she even showed up. He was for her from the, in that moment of, of like engaging her in conversation, in that moment of like exposing her like deepest thirst and her deepest need in that area, probably greatest shame in her life. He was for her so that she could see that she had a thirst that needed to be satisfied and that none of the wells that she had been going back to again and again and again were going to do it. He was for her when he corrected her false thinking about like, about that maybe the Samaritan answer was the right answer. And he was offering her eternal life for her, like relentlessly. You know, and then he, he brings her attention to what really does matter. Look what he says in verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's saying, yeah, there is an hour coming. And he says, in fact, it's right here, right now, today. And true worship has very little to do with whether, like, where you worship. The true worship has to do with, like, who you worship and what kind of person you are. Look what he says. He says, the, we, we, verse 23, an hour is coming now is when true worshipers shall worship in the Father in spirit and in truth. What he's saying there is when you worship in spirit, like, he's talking about, like, our deepest, innermost part of our being. He's like, true worshipers are those who in their innermost part of their being are focused on God and are worshiping him. And then he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Like, what he's, I think what he's saying there is like, from our deepest, innermost part of our being, we should be fully focused on God himself. God is spirit, and our spirits need to be completely his. Deep down inside at the fundamental part of our life. True worship is worship from the depths of our spirit towards the Lord. He also goes on. And it you need to worship in spirit and in truth. The idea of truth is that it needs to be our worship needs to be in, in accordance with God's word. And not just as a bunch of rules, but, but like in accordance with his God, God's word and God's revelation of himself, which we found out in John chapter 1, is, is Jesus Christ himself. And that Jesus Christ is the one who fully explains God to us. But he's saying, if you're going to be fully focused on God, you need to be, you need to, from the depths of your being, be worshiping him. And, and all of that needs to be in accordance with his truth and, and through the lens and through access that's available in Jesus Christ, because he is God's like final expression of himself. That's worship deep down within. And, and, and there's this amazing kind of promise that's just, that's just implied in this. Because look what he says in verse um, 21. At the end of verse 21, you shall worship the Father. Verse 23, you shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeks those to be his worshipers. You know, one of the amazing things about that is that I, I don't remember the exact number, and I didn't have time to go back and 
sort through all the references to Father in the Old Testament, but it's less than 20. I think it's like 13. There's 13 times where God is referred to as Father in the, Old, in the entire Old Testament. And yet Jesus is telling this woman who is far from, like, God in, like, every way humanly, like, visible possible. And he's saying, you can enter into worship of the Father. You can have a new relationship with God that isn't approaching him out of fear and out of needing to earn his favor. It's, re- it's this relationship that's defined by the love of the Father for his children. And even though you're here by yourself, kind of excluded from the life of even the Samaritans, Like the Father seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, let me just comment about that a little bit, like about worship. Worship is a big deal in our culture today. And what Jesus is saying is that it doesn't matter where you worship. He's not undermining the importance of us gathering as a church, but he's like, I think today he would probably say it doesn't matter what style of worship. When I was in Peru, um, we were doing evangelism along the Yukiali River, which is the main tributary into the Amazon, and there was this people group called the Shipibo Kaminibo. It was like two tribes um, that we were working with, and we would, I didn't know Shipibo, but they, we had these evangelistic films that we would show in their language, and, and because we were like Americans and we were literally out in the jungle, had to get there by like dugout canoes, um, it was quite the spectacle. So people would come like by canoe from, for days to come to like this thing that we would do, and we learned songs in Shipibo, and we would sing them, and, and then we would show these evangelistic films, and and one of the things I realized is that the churches among the Shipibo Kanibo is, is that when the missionaries first went down there, the those people didn't have any, this is what they told me anyway, didn't have any indigenous instruments. They had like percussion, but they had no indigenous like instruments with melody. And so the missionaries uh, wrote home and they said, well, we need some instruments that we can play in the jungle without like, without a... Uh, uh, power or anything, and so they had people send down all of their like grandma's like um, accordions in their attic, um, and so they got these accordions which could play in the jungle, and they're pretty easy to play. And it was the weirdest experience, and one of the weirdest worship experiences in my life was like I'm in the jungles of Peru um, with these people, like these tribal people that are literally hunters and gatherer tribe people, and we're singing together, praising Jesus to accordion music. weird but you know what like i think if we were the kind of worshipers that jesus is talking about here my suspicion is if we worship god from the depths of our being through jesus christ as the truth of who god is fully focused on him our worship would be a lot more durable than it is because you know we are relentlessly self-centered people and, like, our worship even becomes self-centered, where worship isn't about, like, what I offer to God. It's all about what God offers to me. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, true worship is from, like, the depths of our spirit, fully focused on God in accordance with what he's revealed about himself and his truth. And, you know, I just, so often our worship just becomes, like, something that we do on Sunday where we give Jesus a little shout-out so that we can go about our, like, life on our own. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think that's what he's talking about when he tells her that, like, worship in Jerusalem or Samaria, that's all obsolete. 
our worship would be a lot more durable and probably a lot more genuine if we didn't care about all those things like style. And, and uh, honestly, as weird as it was to be in Peru with those people, some there were some really sweet like memories of worship, sitting with these people completely different from me, like worshiping Jesus, right? From the depths of their being. You know, we it moves on. The story just kind of keeps high pace moving forward. If we and so we go into verse twenty-seven, and in verse twenty-seven, there's this really awkward moment, and I'll read. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marvelled that he had begin, he had been speaking with a woman, and no one said, "What do you seek?" or "Why do you speak with her?" So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So here's this awkward moment like, oh, I missed the most important part. Verse 26, Jesus in verse 26, when she responds to his statement and says, oh, we know that that Messiah is coming, that there's this one who's going to come, who's going to reveal the truth to us, who's going to tell us all things. Jesus, like with no ambiguity whatsoever, verse 26, I who speaks to you am he. It's like this mic drop moment, right? Like, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that the Jews and Samaritans have been waiting for forever. It's me. And then we get interrupted by the disciples bungling in with their lunches, right? Like, got in from Wingo, they got the big platter of sandwiches. No ham, just be clear about that. They come rolling in, and so we don't even get to see the woman's response. And then there's this awkwardness, and they're like, what? You know, and you can just imagine this. Jesus and the woman are looking at each other. He just drops the moment, like, I'm the Messiah. And then the disciples all bust in, and nobody wants to say anything. Like, it actually says that. They had all these questions in their head, like, why is she talking to her? What does he want from her? But no one says, so it's this moment where there's like the disciples, Jesus, the woman, it's all awkward. This woman's like, I'm out, right? And so she leaves and goes into the city and she begins to tell people, she has this wonder too. Like, is this the Messiah? He's the one that tells me everything that I have done. And let me just be clear about this. Like, if, if it was such a thing that Jesus told me everything I had done and was like judgmental and condemning and like arrogant about me because I'm a Samaritan and he's a woman. I mean, I'm a woman and he's not. Just be clear, Jesus is not a woman. That, she wouldn't be so excited. But what she's saying is like, this person knows me intimately. He knew me in that like area of my greatest shame and, and probably sin and probably pain and sorrow. And yet he offered life to me anyway. Could this be the one? You know, she believes and questions at the same time. I think that's sometimes how our faith is. It's like it's growing. She doesn't know everything that Jesus is pointing towards when, when you know, the, the fact that he's going to offer himself up, but she'll figure it out. You know, I just want to make one point. As the disciples are coming in, there's this awkwardness. She goes back into the city and she begins to talk to everybody. And she tells everybody, he told me everything that I have done. And that phrase is going to come up again later. I think what we see there is that this woman, from the place of her greatest shame now, becomes the, the very like foundation of her testimony. 
Like, no longer is she, like, hiding away at the well by herself. She's like, this guy knows it all. All the stuff that you guys talk about behind my back. All the stuff that your wives, like, murmur and whisper about, about that woman. He knows it all. And he offered me this anyway. Could he be the real Messiah? And I think it's, I think that that should just be a challenge for all of us is that the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth from the depths that they're being and from that like murkiest, dirtiest part of ourselves that we're like ashamed about. And then when Jesus ministers to that and like graciously exposes that and brings like forgiveness and life in those areas of death, man, our, our, our capacity for worship is so much more expanded. And, and her testimony the very thing that was like the source of shame for her became the very foundation of her testimony because she could like point to like the greatness of Jesus in it. And then we're, the camera quickly shifts to our third point this morning, which is work. And look what happens in starting in verse, um, verse 31. In the meanwhile, the disciples requested him saying, Rabbi, eat. So here's, here's the way this goes down. The woman's there. There's this mic drop moment, all this awkwardness. The woman finally leaves. They're like, whew, glad she's gone. Now we can have lunch, right? So they're all like, hey, Rabbi, it's time for lunch. And then Jesus comes back to them, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Oh, no, I'm skipping ahead. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Right? So the disciples are in the same place the woman was in the text we saw last week where Jesus offered her living water. And she's like, oh, I'd rather not have to come back here every day to draw water. Give me this water. I love indoor plumbing. Let's just go with that, right? He's like, no, 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 no. The disciples are in the same boat. He's like, oh, I've got food that will truly satisfy that you guys don't know about. And they're like, what? I hope that Samaritan lady didn't bring him food. He's going to get sick, Right? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's like, you know what, guys? There is something completely more satisfying, completely more enriching and nourishing than your turkey sandwiches that you brought me from Winco. The food that's really going to satisfy, that what's just really going to nourish us, is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. What he's saying is my interaction with that woman, guess what? I was doing the will of the Father, seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. I was accomplishing his work to bring in worshipers. That's what's satisfying me. And then he says this, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white for harvest. It's an interesting statement. He says, all of you all say that you plant seeds, and then you have to wait four months, and then you have to harvest. And what you're saying, you know, the way he's applying it to them right now is you guys are sitting here eating your lunch thinking, like, there's no fruit to be picked. There's no harvest to be harvested. He's like, you're all saying it's not the right time, it's not the right circumstance, it's not the right moment. 
There's a million reasons why we shouldn't like talk to people. In fact, there's no one around us who we should tell about Jesus because they're all Samaritans. Right? He's like, do you not say that? And he says this. Behold, I say to you, like, stop talking to yourselves. Listen to me. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Think about this scene. Because in verse 30, verse 30, it says, they, talking about the men of the city, went out of the city and were coming to him. And then simultaneously with that, Jesus is having this conversation. So there's this crowd of people coming from the city on the basis of the woman's testimony that's approaching the well as these guys are like obsessing about their lunch. And Jesus is like, no, there's more important things to do than eat. He says, and and you guys think it's not time to harvest. Behold, lift up your eyes. There's this crowd of Samaritans coming. The fields are white for harvest. And then he says this. He says, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. What he's saying there is like, and he's, he's using this really interesting allusion to the Old Testament. And, and what he's talking about is that the sower and the reaper should rejoice together, that, that we're sowing seeds, but we're also reaping simultaneously. So it's like if, you know, you think about farmers, like at, at planting time in the spring, they're working hard all day, like getting the seeds in the soil. After working hard all day, they go down to like wherever farmers go after a good hard day's work, to celebrate their hard day's work, right? And there, coming in at the same time as then, is the guys bringing in the harvest. Like, there's sowing and harvesting going on simultaneously so that they are sitting down, um, having a beer together at the end of the workday, saying, oh, like, man, we had a good day's work. We were sowing, and yeah, we were reaping. We're rejoicing together over our hard, good day's work together. Jesus is saying that there's not a gap between sowing and reaping. There's not this like four-month lag time. In the kingdom of God, like sowing and reaping go hand in hand. In fact, the quote from Amos, there's this interesting quote from Amos that I think that, that Jesus is referring to. It's Amos chapter 9, verse 11. This is what he says. In that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up the re- ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What he's saying there is the house of David this promise of, of the king that's going to come and reestablish the dynasty of David and bring in the kingdom of God will one day happen. That's why it's so important that Jesus is a descendant of David. Then it says, so they may possess the remnant of Edom. And then it says this, and all the nations who are called by my name. This passage is also quoted in um, Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, James uses this quote and that phrase specifically, all the nations who are called by, na- by name, to signify that God is, is including the Gentiles into his Davidic kingdom as well. God is including the Gentiles into the nations, into like his new kingdom and his reign. And then it says this, well, it declares the Lord who does this, very next verse. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. What he's saying there is that the guy, there's going to be such a bountiful harvest that 
the, that the people so, like reaping the grain are still going to be reaping the grain when the plowmen are, are like coming to like plow for the next season's field. Like they're going to, the plowmen will overtake the reapers. There's not going to be this gap. Like there's going to be this massive harvest in the kingdom of God where, where like the sowing and reaping are happening at the same time. You, you, you can't even gather it all in before it's time to plant again. Same image there is that the, the guys treading grapes. So in October, when we have crush, they're treading grapes. And all, at the same time as the people sowing seed, there is so much grape harvest that when spring rolls around all through the winter, like they're still crushing grapes. Like what Jesus is saying is that don't think that this is a time of the ground laying fallow, disciples. He's saying in the, in the kingdom of God, in this Davidic kingdom, when God reestablishes like Jesus Christ as king, it is going to be a time of fruitfulness like among all the peoples, every single one of them. And lift up your eyes and look at all these Samaritans coming. I think there's something to be said for us here. Because the disciples like had all sorts of excuses of why not to talk to why it was still four months until the harvest, why they shouldn't talk to the Samaritans. For one, they were just looking at their lunch. They had their own like needs to meet. They they needed to have their their like hunger satiated. They were feeling uncomfortable because they'd walked all day. And Jesus is like, guys, stop looking at your lunch. Lift up your eyes and look around you. The fields are white for harvest. And in the age of my kingdom, it is going to be this bountiful harvest from Bangladesh to the Dominican Republic to McMinnville. I think the questions we need to ask ourselves is, is this. is like, for one, what is it that has attracted our gaze that we need to look up from? Disciples were their daily needs, their prejudices, their assumptions about who was good enough to be in the kingdom. And look all around you. The fields are white for harvest. And you might look up and you might say like, man, this, everybody around me is just jacked up. Can I get any in? Like, that's what I'm, I'm looking at you guys. So. <laughs> that's the whole point. Right? Like the Samaritans were jacked up in the Jewish mind. They were as far from them as they could be. Like Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. It was if you if you touched a Samaritan woman, you were made unclean. If you ate Samaritan food, it was like eating pork, they said. And yet Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Like lift up your eyes. Look at those people around you. The fields are white for harvest, and the fact that they like, don't know God is proof of that. And in God's kingdom, he's doing this work. The Father is seeking worshipers. It goes on. Jesus continues. Verse 36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. It's like you can be part of this harvest. Verse 37, For in this case there the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He's like, you can just go cherry picking, folks. Like, you can just be like the guy that hangs down at one end of the basketball court where everybody else is doing the work, and they just throw a lobby of the ball, and you just put it in. Like, you're, they're doing all the work. 
I'm just inviting you into the labor. You know, who's doing the work in this passage? Well, first of all, first and foremost, the Father is. The Father is seeking worshipers from whoever, not just from the people that are like them. Jesus is doing work. He's engaging the woman. What we found out is the woman is doing work. The woman and Jesus are rejoicing together because she went into the city and she's like, she's sowing seeds among the, like her fellow Samaritans and they're all coming to who? To Jesus. And Jesus is bringing them in and the disciples get to be a part of that. He's like, all you have to do is join in the work of like the father and me and all those people that have gone before you. It's not all on you. And all, all the glory belongs to the Lord because he's the one that's accomplishing it. And I think our challenge for us in our age where we are quickly moving to the point where we, we're, we're no different than the Samaritans or the Jews where there are those people that are okay and those people that aren't okay. Those people that we'll deal with and those people that we won't deal with. Those people that we tolerate and those ones that we don't tolerate. Jesus is like, those, those, my death and burial and resurrection and ascension and my plan for, to save the nations makes all of that obsolete. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. You know, that brings us to our last point. I'll, I'll do this quickly. Verse 39 through 42. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. And here they're like, that's the one. Why? First and foremost, because of the word of the woman. The word of the woman went and told her, and it brings it up again. It's not like there's any other women in the story that he could be talking about. The woman who told them everything that Jesus had told her, everything that she had done. This woman who was just giving her testimony. They believed, and they were like, oh, we don't believe just because of your word, but we believe because of, like, the word from Jesus himself. Like, we've experienced him ourselves. And I think this is a great, like, passage for, to challenge all of us. Like, God uses the word of those that he encounters to, like, reach other people with the message. She didn't know everything. In fact, she had, her whole thing was more question than answer. But she knew that Jesus had something and that Jesus kind of met her in her darkest place. And she shared that word with other people and brought them to Jesus and Jesus shared. And their conclusion was, is this one is indeed the savior of the world. And then, so Marv, why don't you kind of come up to close us, but in, God saves the world through his son, Jesus Christ, through transforming us as his people for like sending us out into the world to represent him. 
to point other people back to him. And it's not just the people like ourselves. You know, there's this thing where we often think like, oh, like the best people to reach people are people just like that people, right? Like, oh, if you're a plumber, talk to all your plumber friends, which is true. Like, that's, that's good. If you're a logger, talk to your logger friends. If you're a doctor, talk to your doctor friends. But that's not what happened in this story. Jesus, the rabbi, talked to the, like, immoral woman and crossed a ton of boundaries. The disciples ended up being part of this harvest as they talked to the Samaritans. They stayed there for two whole days, eating with them and fellowshipping with them and hanging out with them. And don't, don't fall into the trap like, oh, it's not time. There's nobody really around me to, that, that needs Jesus or that would be open to word of Jesus. Because you don't know what God's doing. Lift up your eyes. Fields are white for harvest. You can enter into the labors of those gone before you. It's not all about you. And so they can discover that he's the savior of the world. You are the one that should just capture our gaze and should capture our wonder and should capture our attention. And, and yet, as we look upon you, um, that gaze isn't meant to stop there. Like, you were looking outward. You were seeking those... Um, seeking people like this Samaritan woman and like the other Samaritans to be your worshipers. And, and so, Father, I just pray that you would help us as, as your disciples to, to focus on you, to embrace your heart for the nations, your plan for this world, and that we would leave here um, representing you faithfully and, and winsomely and lovingly to the, the world around that, that so desperately needs to see the beauty of you and the beauty of your gospel. Uh, I just ask that you deliver us from all the ways that we screw that up and and falsely portray uh, who your son is. Um, And I just ask that you would find people through us to worship you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.